With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the Nature Pact podcast, where we are talking with investors and entrepreneurs about climate change and the green economy. My name is Tarma Virki, and my guest today is Tim Haid, co-founder of Scale Microgrid Solutions. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the Nature Pact podcast. I'm Merit, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Single Earth, and we're a team of more than 70 people building a nature-backed economy. And if that sounds crazy enough for you, then join us. Sign up at single.earth to be among the first to get access to our nature-backed tokens. And let's talk more on our EarthSavers Discord channel. Enjoy the show. Hi, Tim. Welcome to nature Backed. Thanks so much for having me, Tarma. I'm really looking forward to it. And to start off, uh, tell us in a few words what you guys do exactly. Yeah, so uh, I work at a company called Scale Microgrids, and we build essentially personal power plants. Um, so as we think about sort of climate action, the energy transition moving forward, there's kind of two key principles that we need to keep in mind. The first one is obviously decarbonization. We talk about that a lot, transitioning the global energy system away from fossil fuels. Um, but the second is decentralization. Uh, our current energy infrastructure has way too many single points of failure. And so we need to figure out a way to make it more reliable and more resilient in the face of, uh, you know, ever-changing climate catastrophes. Um, and so essentially what Scale Microgrids do, does is we build power plants for buildings, uh, primarily using solar and storage, but also all sorts of different types of generation assets. Um, we, we put those assets behind the meter. And what that allows buildings to do is produce their own power and interact with the grid uh, during blue sky conditions, but then in the event of a grid disruption or an outage, they can isolate behind the meter uh, and continue operations. Um, and so that's what we've been doing for about the last 10 years, and uh, we're getting better at it every day. Uh, how far are your operations these days? Uh, how far? Yeah, I mean, uh, in how many country, how many oh, uh, yeah. towns, so, so cities, uh, areas? Yeah, t totally. Yeah, so so we're right now totally focused on the U.S. domestic market. Um, you know, it's one it's one of the things that's very challenging about building a clean tech company in today's environment is that every region is kind of its own power market, and so for us, it takes a lot of time and effort to go into a new market and really get a good enough understanding of the rules, regulations um, uh, in order to be successful there. And so uh, we tend to go into regions and try to go narrow and deep, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so right now, uh, we primarily operate in the Northeast United States, uh, primarily Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, and then in California. And California is currently our biggest market. Uh, where we're doing a lot of work to help the state address uh, the wildfire crisis and some of the issues that are stemming from that. Um, but ultimately, you know, distributed energy, which is the broader industry that we're in, uh, is going to have a global impact. And uh, there are applications 
applications for this technology all over the world, uh, mm. many of which fascinate us. And from a business perspective, we're trying to be very disciplined and kind of how quickly we grow so we don't get too far over our skis. Uh, but I think in the next few years, uh, we'll definitely have some international reach uh, if things go according to plan. But uh, solar is the main part of the business, or, or is, it, is it kind of almost all of it these days? Yeah, I mean, solar and storage is really the technological innovation that unleashes distributed energy. And so if you think about it from a very high level, the reason that we have a centralized power infrastructure is because of economies of scale. And so if you think about traditional generation assets, whether that's coal or natural gas or nuclear or hydro, um, which was the bulk of the energy mix uh, for the first hundred years of grid commercialization, uh, economies of scale play a huge role. So essentially, the bigger you make the plant, the cheaper the unit economics of power are. Um, and that led us to create the system that we have today, where we build massive, you know, 100 200, 500 megawatt uh, power plants. And then we connect those power plants to load via this vast network of wires. Mm. Um, solar is a game-changing technology in that the economies of scale that apply to most traditional generation assets don't apply to solar. So it's a little bit more expensive, but in the same ballpark, if you put solar on your roof or you put solar in the middle of a desert. Mm -hmm. And so that's really sort of the, the first technological breakthrough. Now, when we were just putting solar on every roof, right, then the problem became sort of time matching. And so we were overproducing at some areas of the day and underproducing at others. And so the biggest technological innovation over the last decade that, that's really driven this industry is uh, sort of the commercialization of lithium ion battery energy storage systems which now, now allows us to combine that with rooftop and carport solar. Um, we do some ground mount stuff too, but on-site solar generation coupled with batteries uh, can really provide you know, 80% of the facility's power needs today. And then figuring out the other 20% is where uh, we spend a lot of engineering R&D time uh, mm. trying to figure out how to get uh, a zero or low carbon <laughs> solution. Uh, right now, the typical microgrid that we build will have uh, a little bit of gas um, as sort of a backstop to make sure that when the grid goes down, we can continue to run facility operations. But we're experimenting with all sorts of cool technologies in that space, different battery chemistries and longer duration storage, as well as uh, alternative sustainable fuels like uh, green hydrogen is an example. Uh, but you know that that's sort of the challenge for us in the next decade as we've gotten 80% of the way there. How do we get the? How do we get to 100? A lot of talk in Europe, at least, been about the kind of the you know splitting the energy production into the smaller pieces. That instead yeah. instead of a, you know one big coal plant, there could be thousand small solar plants. But uh, what you were talking about is 80 and 20 and solving the 20 percent challenge. I understand that you basically the microgrids for you is something which can operate independently of the kind of nationwide grid. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I think Europe is getting ahead of the game on this issue. Unfortunately, the precipice for that was uh, this terrible situation that's going on in Ukraine. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we talk about sort of the sustainability aspects uh, and then sort of the physical climate threat aspects of distributed generation a lot. 
But what gets talked about a lot less is the national security implications of that, right? Mm. And the, the reality is that at a very, very high level, um, a centralized generation infrastructure uh, is not good for national security, right? Yeah, There's too many too. single points of failure. Um, it's too reliant on commodities that can be restricted, like we're seeing with what Russia is doing in, in Western Europe. Um, and so essentially it gives uh, a handful of people outsized influence on the system. And so, you know, as we think about how to build a better, more equitable energy system for the next generation, um, that's one of the big attributes of distributed generation is that by sort of, um, you know, allocating that risk over much bigger number of, of units, um, you can actually diversify away a lot of the national security risk uh, that, that's sort of embedded in our system today. And so I think that's what Europe's going through right now, right, is, is saying that, hey, instead of being reliant on these big multi-hundred megawatt gas plants, and then the commodity coming from, uh, let's just say, a less than friendly counterparty, um, we can actually do this ourselves, right? Mm. And, uh, and, I, and I think what we're going to see over the next decade in Europe is going to be awe-inspiring in terms of the speed and pace in which this can actually happen. Um, so it's, it's a really, really interesting time uh, in the energy space in terms of how we're seeing um, you know, the economies react in Western Europe especially. Unfortunately, it's, you know, the precipice for that was like a terrible, terrible situation. And so that's one of the things we're trying to talk with leaders around the world about is, you know, let's try to not wait until it gets to this point before we take action, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do this proactively instead of reactively. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, I would say that there's sort of a mixed bag in, in the international leadership community right now in terms of people who want to go fast and, and people who, I don't know, in their view, are taking a more measured approach. Mm. The uh, Looking at the, you know, the U.S. map, the northeastern part that doesn't sound like the most sunny one. Is there, you know, in, yeah. I mean, I can understand the California logic or I could understand the Florida yeah. logic, but how about the Northeastern? Do you have enough sun for that kind of the strong focus on solar? Yeah, no. So it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, the answer is kind of, right? Um, you would actually be amazed with modern solar technology, how much power you can generate um, even in conditions where uh, less than ideal conditions, right? So sort of winter days, things like that. And again, storage uh, technology is evolving so rapidly that even in areas of the world where you don't get sunlight, you know, 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, you could put systems together that can sort of handle that, uh, that, that situation. Um, but look, there's always going to be, you know, as you talk about solar specifically, there's always going to be areas of the country that have better sun resources than others. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we still need the big grit, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, um, we don't look at distributed energy or distributed uh, generation as a replacement for the big grid. We look at it as a complement, right? And so if you think about, you know, uh, in the United States, a state like Maine, Right. Or, you know, some of the projects that we're working on uh, in, in sort of northern latitudes, uh, maybe the, the microgrid we build for those customers can't provide 100 percent operational resilience because of the lack of solar resource. Um, but what we found is that during outages, right, having 50 percent of your power is a lot better than having zero percent. Right. 
And so during blue sky conditions, it can work collaboratively with the grid. Um, but then in an outage event, right, you can still back up critical systems. You can make sure that, you know, your operations are running at least in a limited capacity. So I think there's a role for this type of technology throughout the world. Obviously, it does vary a little bit. And when you get into those northern latitudes, that's when today, like practically uh, behind the meter fossil generation, things like natural gas generators and diesel generators and propane and that kind of stuff, you know, play a bigger role as a percentage of the generation mix. Again, that's the next big step for our industry is trying to figure out how to replace that dispatchable piece with um, a, a net zero alternative. Mm. Uh, what's your bet? What's the most likely of the, uh, the new technologies to be replacing that uh, fossil fuel in the last mile in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of two camps um, when, when you get into like sort of the academic circles of this. Um, the first thing that a lot of folks are talking about is green hydrogen, right? Or, or I'll just say sustainable hydrogen, since the color wheel uh, very much confuses me, and I wish we would move away from that. Mm. Um, but sustainable hydrogen is is one candidate to to sort of step in and replace. And you know, the basic premise is that we're going to have a lot of excess renewable electricity that today is being curtailed, um, that we can turn into hydrogen and then burn hydrogen. Um, to provide that dispatchable element, that that responsive element, um, both in the grid mix and in behind the meter applications. I think the problem with, with hydrogen today is really the midstream piece, right? So we know how to produce it relatively cheaply, and we know how to use it relatively cheaply, but we don't know how to get it from the place it's produced to the place it's consumed in an economically viable manner. Um, and some of the you know chemical properties of hydrogen um, mean that we can't utilize existing gas infrastructure, right? You can't put hydrogen to, into a gas pipe because the molecules are too small and they leak through. Um, and so that's the, that, that's the real challenge today, right, is the midstream piece. How do you get it from the place it's produced to the place it's consumed? Um, and I don't really think anyone has a great plan for that. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that's sort of the, the, the key barrier to uh, green hydrogen in a distributed generation, uh, you know, capacity today. And then, you know, the other school of thought is really longer duration storage, right? And so there are a bunch of new battery chemistries coming online that are different than lithium ion, which is traditionally really, really good at short, sort of two to four hour duration storage is where lithium ion is killing it right now. Um, but, you know, ultimately, if you're going to sort of isolate a facility behind the, you know, behind the grid or behind the meter over a long duration, it's very expensive to do that with lithium ion. And so you look at chemistries like iron air, which is really, really exciting. And there are some new, uh, really cool companies that are coming out with products that, that we're testing out. Um, nickel hydrogen is another battery chemistry that potentially has uh, properties that um, can sort of complement lithium ion in that way and provide for, for longer duration. I wouldn't say that those technologies are widely commercially available right now, right? The, the companies that are building those things are still kind of in their infancy. And um, from an infrastructure perspective, they're not widely utilized. Um, but, you know, I think when you look at sort of the ramp rate when it comes to battery technology, 
Um, we're accomplishing a lot of things in months that people thought were going to take decades. And so we're very optimistic about the you know longer duration storage technologies that are coming online and how they can fit into our systems, probably like a year or two away from those being really ready for prime time. Uh, but we're keeping a close eye on. Mm. And classically, the understanding has been that uh, battery technology development is a really, really long process, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, that that that's definitely been the 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 common you know sort of vernacular around the topic. Um, but I think we're constantly proving it wrong, right? And you know, we always joke internally that you know, no matter what analyst report we look at when it comes to sort of the the growth curve of of batteries, um, they're always wrong. Right. And they're always underestimating, you know, how fast this is actually going to happen. Um, and so, you know, look, I remember, uh, you know, 2014, 2015, when we were starting this company, talking to investors about battery energy storage technology um, and, and a lot of engineers as well. Um, and them just sort of dismissing us as crazy. Right. Like this is never going to happen. You can't use like Duracell batteries to, to power a building. Um, and then three years later, right, like they were wrong. And so, you know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing right now is um, really the full potential of human innovation when it comes to battery chemistry. And we're moving a lot faster than I think anyone predicted we, we could. You know, we're starting to see um, government policy sort of support private innovation in that front to a much greater extent, whether that's in the United States with the passion of the Inflation Reduction Act or whether that's in, you know, Europe with, with a lot of the programs that you use doing. Australia is a massive leader on, on this front as well. Um, lots of good programs in uh, Asia as well, right? Uh, Japan's doing some cool stuff. China's doing a lot. Um, and so, you know, look, I think that, you know, that combination of sort of public and private innovation is, cup, is coming together and making a lot of these things happen faster than, you know, analysts predict. Um, whether that's going to be fast enough is, you know, remains to be seen. But we got a lot of really smart people working really hard on it, so I'm optimistic. That's cool. the The craziest uh, battery or energy storage technology I recently read about was uh, using uh, sand mines to store yeah. the energy, which you know felt like out of this world project. Yeah, you know, it's it's. Um, so that that that's one of that's one of the real interesting things happening in the energy industry just generally right now, right? Is that there are a lot of uh, technologies, right? Like molten salt is is kind of what you're talking about um, that have tremendous potential from uh, a technological standpoint, and the question is economic viability, mm -hmm. right? And so ultimately. You know, I think that, you know, this is one of the things that, that we talk a lot about that I think leaders in our industry talk a lot about is that, you know, if you look at the energy transition right now, we really have a deployment problem, not an innovation problem, right? We have pretty much all the technologies we need to solve 80% of the problem. We're just not moving fast enough in terms of rolling those technologies out and getting them into commercial markets. Um, and so, you know, that that's that's a lot of question, a lot of the question around alternative, you know, energy storage technologies and molten salt definitely mm -hmm. falls in that category is, you know, from a 
academic perspective in a lab, you can definitely make this stuff work and it works well. The question is, can you roll that out to the market and still compete um, at, you know, the price per kilowatt hour average that, that you're looking at in any specific market? And I think for molten salt technologies, they're not quite there, right? Um, that, that'll be the whole game. Um, for us, that's less of a, you know, behind the meter technology. So, you know, we don't really think there's a huge role for that in distributed energy applications. But certainly as we talk about the central grid mm. um, and the need to load balance the grid as well, there could be a big role for that. The whole question is, can they make the economics work? And uh, I think only time will tell, right? You mm. can find sort of people who think both sides of the coin on that. Um, but we'll see it play out. Mm. Tell us a little bit about kind of their overall micro grid uh, kind of yeah. market. Is it is it very fragmented? Uh You know, I, I think historically, um, the driver of the microgrid market has been economics, right? So traditionally, who you've built these projects for is uh, energy consumers who care a lot about cost, right? So you think about, you know, data centers or hospitals or paper mills or heavy manufacturing where, you know, energy costs or their utility bills represent 20, 30, 40% of their total operating costs. Um, and when you build microgrids the right way to support those types of industries, you can reduce their you know, utility bill uh, 15, 20, 25%. That makes a real impact on their bottom line. Um, and that's how you get these projects done. The problem is when you look at sort of the mass market, right? Very, very few people fall into that category, right? There are very few steel manufacturing plants relative to, you know, grocery stores and movie theaters and things like that. And when you start talking to, you know, the mass market, energy cost isn't really a huge driver of decision making, especially when you're talking about complicated problems. So what we've seen over the last three years is the market's like really shifting pretty quickly. Um, and for the mass market, the two biggest drivers of microgrid adoption are now sustainability and resilience. So if you think about, you know, a state like California, where I am right now, um, you know, wildfire related power problems are causing big disruptions for a lot of consumers, uh, whether that's, you know, the big energy users, uh, the heavy manufacturing folks, or it's the smaller CNI businesses, um, you know, grocery stores is an example where, you know, they might not be, you know, so interested uh, in, you know, making a 12 cent a kilowatt hour electric bill go to 11 cents. But if their store is going to get shut down for two weeks because, you know, the grid doesn't work, now all of a sudden they care a lot. And so resilience is kind of the biggest driver of adoption right now. And then look, I think the rise of ESG is a very, very real thing. So, you know, I could just tell you anecdotally, um, you know, Over the last five years, um, the the driver of corporate decision making and, and the role that sustainability plays in that has really changed. And so I think, you know, typically our systems will reduce, uh, you know, net CO2 emissions by roughly 30% compared to the grid average uh, pre-microgrid. Um, and that is starting to make a real impact on consumer decision making as well. So for most of our smaller clients, While the economics work, right, they still want the projects to be break even or better. The bigger drivers are, can we have operational resilience so we can continue to, you know, run our business during an outage? And can we reduce our carbon footprint? 
um, so that we're more consistent with our corporate ESG goals. Uh, and if you could check those two boxes, I think, uh, you know, you'll get a meeting. Let's put it that way. That's a good beginning. But is there, is there a lot of companies uh, offering kind of micro-grade solutions? Do you see a kind of a lot of competition for the deals and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's getting better every day, right? And, mm. I, and I think, you know, internally, um, you know, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about competition unless it's trying to help them, honestly, right? Because mm. I think we're in, a, in an industry right now in distributed energy where, you know, the goal is to grow the pie and not worry about how it, we divide it up. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, I think we've been really excited to see that a lot of really innovative, smart people are starting companies in the space. Um, you know, overall, the industry is basically doubling year over year, um, which is really exciting. Um, and so that's attracting a lot more talent. It's attracting a lot more private investment. It's attracting a lot more public uh, money as well. And so, yeah, you know, it's growing rapidly. The competition's getting better every day, keeps us on our toes, forces us to, you know, sort of keep innovating. But I think generally, you know, we're still in the first inning of this game, right? Um, this is this is a very, very nascent industry. Um, and so there's room for a ton more, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think the more, you know, the, the, the better and better and better the companies in the space get, um, the easier it is for new people to come in. Um, and, and so, you know, I think this is going to be a wave that we can ride for, for quite some time. Mm. Do you think the whole long time there will be until, you know, some kind of epic moments when, uh, I don't know, the state decides to close down a nuclear power plant because this uh, state has enough microgrids in place or it's kind of the old versus new world um, shift? Yeah, well, I mean, I hope we don't close down nuclear power plants, right? I mean, I think the goal right now is to try to first close down coal power plants and then second close down, you know, combined cycle plants or baseload natural gas plants. Um, and then you start getting into, okay, you know, are we going to, you know, curtail nuclear resources or hydro resources? That, you know, I doubt that's going to be a problem I work on in my career, right? I think, you know, over the next 30, 40 years, um, really, the focus is going to be displacing fossil gases and coal on the uh, on the market, right? Um, so we're probably we're probably a little way away from that. But look, if you look at a market like the United States, right? I think people underestimate how big distributed energy has gotten. And keep in mind, right? What I do on the commercial and industrial side right now is a very small part of the market. The much bigger part is residential. So you have companies like you know Sunrun and Sonova in the United States. Um, that are, you know, putting solar panels on everyone's house, right? And batteries in everyone's garage. And so right now, over the last three years, 40% of capacity additions to the United States grid have been behind the meter, right? Um, which is like a massive, uh, a massive number. Um, and so I think we're getting to the point right now where distributed energy is starting to displace coal and gas. Um, again, that's going to be sort of a, a choppy road over the next decade or two. Um, I think we'll probably we're probably in a position where we can get rid of coal in the next decade. Um, and then we're probably looking at like a 15, 20 year time frame at, you know, at this sort of current pace mm -hmm. of innovation and market development um, before we're, you know, fully off combined cycle gas plants. Um, 
But again, you know, that's one of the exciting things about it is um, the only thing stopping us is how fast we can move, right? And how fast um, can And innovate. so I think, you know, that's that's one of the things everyone in our industry is really driving towards is like faster, 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 while tr still trying to remain, you know, disciplined and, and making mm -hmm. sure that things work well. Because um, again, you know, this is electricity, right? Electricity is dangerous. It's important. It's It's critical. So, you know, a lot of the tech companies that have come before us, right, their mantra is some form of like move fast and break things. Um, our mantra is move fast, but don't break things. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we're constantly sort of trying to balance that scale when it comes to, you know, how fast we can innovate without, you know, causing power disruptions for our clients or society as a whole. Mm -hmm. The uh, yeah, I think in this year, Europe will understand the concept of power disruptions in a, in a real, real scale. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, I think that's, it, it, it's, um, it's a really unfortunate situation, but these types of things are inevitable. Right. And I think that's one of the real frustrating things about, you know, the work we do, especially when it when it comes to sort of talking to public sector folks, right. And governments about this type of stuff is if you actually look at the threat assessment, right. And you actually sort of step back and just have an objective view about, you know, how our energy system works today and what the threats are. Um, we should be moving a lot faster. Right. And, and quite frankly, Europe should not be in the situation it's in today where it's so reliant on, you know, Russian oil and gas. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's 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 uh, the status quo is, is pretty strong. Right. And, and I think, you know, try, you know, unfortunately, you know, that, that's kind of what we constantly talk with folks about is, you know, we don't want to have to respond to these types of events after they happen. We know they're going to happen. So let's just do it now. Um, and, and too many times, I think that falls on deaf ears, but we just kind of keep trying to tell the story and, um, you know, hope that, you know, the more and more of, you know, these types of things that happen, the faster and faster policymakers and businesses are going to move to adapt. Mm. Uh, starting to slowly wrap up, uh, what's uh, who, who's the kind of typical customer of yours? Is it a, I don't know, small enterprise or? Yeah. Um, so it's a great question. I mean, it's a, it's, it's constantly evolving, right? And so, you know, traditionally what's paid the bills for us is building bigger systems, right? So, you know, we're building uh, microgrids that support, you know, metal manufacturing plants or big colleges and universities or hospitals or data centers, real big loads like that. Ultimately, what our goal is as a company is to try to get our technology to the point where it's more of a main street product, right? Um, and so right now, the smallest projects we're doing are for grocery stores. And um, we think that we figured out a way to do that that's economically attractive and, you know, delivers a really strong value proposition to our counterparties. Um, but again, it's still, you know, uh, a, a slow process because you think about, you know, the typical grocery store, they operate on pretty thin margins. They're traditionally a conservative business. Their core competency is, you know, selling, selling bread and water, not, you know, kilowatt hours of electricity. So getting into sort of this type of game is, is, uh, is new for them. Right. And so there's a real learning curve. And I think we're rolling out our first projects at sort of the grocery store level right now. We think they're going to perform really, really well. And we think, you know, that sort of sector, a typical grocery store has a peak load of about 250 kilowatts, um, at least in the United States. Right. So, 
that's kind of the, the smallest projects we're working on right now. Um, but then look, ultimately, I think you have some really strong residential companies that are working on like the 15, 20 kilowatt systems. And then you have industrial companies like us that are working on the, you know, 250 kilowatt systems. And the bulk of CNI consumers operate in that, you know, sort of margin right there. So that's the real game, right? Is whether it's residential up or it's commercial and industrial down, we have to close that gap. So there's solutions like this available for everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward, you know, what will next year bring for your company? <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, one, one thing I've learned uh, over our 10 years running this business is uh, don't make predictions, right? Um, yeah. But your, yeah, if, if it's not predictions, you know, what's your targets? What do you want to achieve next yeah. year? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I think, I think um, you know, our goal for the last few years has been to double year over year. And I think, you know, that's pretty much our goal heading into next year as well. Um you know, it's, it's a weird situation that we're in as a business because for the first five, six, seven years of our existence, our growth was really demand limited, right? In that, you know, we could build as many microgrids as we can sell, but for whatever reason, right, we weren't awesome at selling them, right? I, I You know, it took us a long time to sort of get customers up the learning curve and get cost, customers comfortable with us as a business and, and with the technology and with the risks that they were taking and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, somewhere around, you know, two, three years ago, that flipped and we became supply constrained, right? Which is we can now sell as many microgrids as we can build, but, you know, it takes people, um, typically people of very high intellect with good experience to build these systems, commission them and make sure they work right um, for, for our customers. And so, you know, that's the journey we're on right now, right? Is trying to figure out how we can grow our company and and improve, you know, in terms of the number of systems we can build every year um, to keep up with demand uh, while doing so in a responsible way, right? And I think that's, you know, that's sort of the key for us is that, you know, one of the things that if you just look at the, you know, the history of the energy industry, but maybe the history of tech in general, um, moving too fast can get you in just as much trouble as moving too slow. And so, uh, you know, I think that's the challenge for us right now is, is making sure that we're not getting too far out over our skis, making sure that, you know, we're playing a long game here, right? Where, you know, this transition is going to happen over 20, 30, 40 years. And the only way that we can continue to play a role in that transition is if we're in business, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that's really, I think, the barrier for us right now is figuring out how do we build systems, uh, you know, better, faster. Um, with, with, you know, sort of in a less labor intense way. Um, and so there's kind of two pieces to that, right? One is we're trying to recruit the best people that we can possibly find. Um, you know, I, I, that's, that's always a challenge, right? That's a challenge for every business. And, and I think we're getting better and better at it, you know, every year. Um, but still something that, you know, we struggle with and, and, um, you know, we're not, we're definitely not perfect at. And then the other side of that, right, is the R&D side of that was trying to figure out how to engineer these systems so they're easier to, you know, build, install, commission. Um, and so that there's really sort of a human resources aspect to this and a technology aspect to this. We're working on both in parallel. And again, that's kind of resulted in us being able to double year over year growth um, for, for at least the last few years. Uh, again, that's sort of our goal heading into 2023. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I want to go faster. Right. And, and, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the conundrum you face as a, a climate tech entrepreneur. And I talk to a lot of my friends about this all the time, right. Where it's like, um, on one hand, I'm super proud of the progress we've made as a company and the benefits that our system, that our systems are having in the broader context of things, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, we've deployed about 70 megawatts of projects, which, you know, on a macro scale is nothing, right? Um, and, and so that's, you know, kind of the constant challenge you face is, you know, there's this time bomb, right? And it's ticking and it's ticking and it's ticking. It's pushing you to go faster and faster and faster. But you still have to have that perspective of like, okay, like we got to go really fast, but not too fast. And, and how do we find that balance? And um, I don't know, when I figure out the answer to that, I'll let you know. But right now, it's just a constant series of conversations. And, um, you know, I think we're lucky that we have a lot of smart people around the table um, who, who have, you know, sort of good views and good opinions of this stuff. Um, and we kind of come together and, and try to make the best decisions that we can. Mm. I think uh, doubling year on year for a long period of time is, you know, from most industries, it's, you know, fast enough. Yeah. And, and again, you know, that, that's the, that's the challenge, right? I think, um, you know, in most other industries, I think that's not only fast enough, that's like very good, right? When you look at that from like an investment perspective, or you look it's at absurd. that from like an NPV perspective or a market cap perspective, right? It's, it's, it's really, really good. When you look at it from a climate perspective, right? And, and, and you think about, you know, what we need to do in order to really transition, you know, in, in, in my career, it's probably not fast enough, right? And I think that's the fundamental conundrum we're facing as, as an industry right now is, you know, we have the technologies to do at least most of the work that we need to do. Um, we have, I think most of, you know, the organizations and the, and the people we need and like the talent coming into the space is remarkable. Um, and yet, right. Like far, you know, humanity's CO2 emissions are still heading in the wrong direction. Right. And so, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, some days you look at it and you say like, oh, this is awesome. We're doubling year over year. And then like the next day you read a newspaper article that's like, we're fucked, right? And like CO2 emissions are still going the wrong direction. You're kind of like, all right, we got to figure out how to move faster. Um, and so I think, you know, at a very high level, that's the, the, that's the juxtaposition every climate tech company is in, right? Is you want to you wanna grow responsibly from a business perspective, and you kind of want to be a little irresponsible from an impact perspective, right? You kind of just want to say like, whatever, this is, you know, this is just money, right? And like, we're try we're fighting for the future of humanity and, you know, having a livable planet for our kids and our grandkids. So like, are we really not going to do this deal because of credit risk or like something like that? And, um, you know, again, I don't think there are any right answers. I think that's something every climate tech company and, and to be honest, every country and every governmental organization has to struggle with on, on a continuous basis. But yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, two things are true at the same time. The, the growth of climate tech as an industry has been remarkable. And also it's not fast enough to deal with the problem. And mm. so how do you reconcile those two things? Um, it, it's challenging, right? Mm. And, and I think we're trying to do our best as, is, as are most of the people I know in, in this industry and in this space. Um, but no one's really figured it out yet. 
True. Uh, I think it's a maybe slightly dark point to wrap it up, but uh, we have <laughs> <laughs> we have to you know finish up yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, thanks, thanks, Tim, for your time, and uh, you know, good luck on growing faster than double in the coming years. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, and I guess maybe to leave it on a more optimistic point, because I, I, I am not pessimistic about this whole thing, right? Is, you know, look, one, one of the things I think we should, we, we all should have learned over the past two, three decades is that the human mind has a very limited ability to understand exponential growth, right? And clean tech and the climate movement is on an exponential growth curve right now. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism, right? If we can continue to improve at the rate we're improving, um, look, I don't know if we're going to solve the climate crisis, right? I don't really think it's a solvable thing, but we are on track to leave a much better world for our kids and grandkids than, you know, the status quo would have, right? And so, I, you know, everyone who's in this community, I know is fighting really hard and keep it up because we're making progress, right? And, and uh, I think uh that that it's really admirable and uh you know again right like we just keep doing what we're doing get on that exponential growth curve um and i think we'll all be able to live with the results when, when we get done with our careers good thanks tim that's much better note to thank wrap you brother it up. i really appreciate you thanks so much Cheers. Cool. join us again for the next episode thank you for listening if you like the show please give us a good rating and leave the feedback in your podcast player so others will find it too we will be back next week. Turn on to Nature Back Podcast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's his dad? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast.